right, right, right. All right. So, start out reading a little bit from the first part of the chapter. As few practices will energize and affect your Christian life as much as sitting attentively under faithful preaching. This is chapter 15. Listen for grace in the pulpit. While corporate worship as a whole may be the single most important means of God's grace, as we said in chapter 14, hearing the fresh, fresh preaching of the gospel from the scriptures is the climactic grace of that gathering. It is in that moment among the assembled church when God speaks in monologue most clearly and completely. The other elements of the gathering follow the rhythm of receiving from him and responding back to him, but in preaching we move into the posture of simply receiving, whether it's for a full half hour or just a tight 20 minutes. And obviously, depending on the church, that number might vary. Um, two things that I think are um, issues that come up in connection with preaching I want to just pause and talk about for a minute. Um, one is the idea of preaching the gospel in every message. So um, there's a lot of things that talk about like gospel-centered and that kind of idea. So what, what would be errors when it comes to an idea of preaching the gospel in every sermon? Okay. And the, the response would probably be, where, where isn't it? Well, I mean, when, when we say that the gospel is in the whole Bible, it doesn't mean every single page, every single verse. It's the underlying element, for sure. Okay. But if you have an eight-verse section that you're preaching on, there's a good possibility that it's not specifically in that section. Okay. And some of it probably comes down to how we define gospel, right? So if gospel is um, Christ was born, lived a righteous life, died a sacrificial death, was buried, raised again the third day victoriously, has gone to heaven, will return to reign. There are a few passages that have the sum total of all of those things in them, all in one short section like you're talking about. But um, I think you remember from the Simeon Trust Conference, one of the things that they talked about is that there are ways to connect to the gospel from a passage that um, are not just um, that entire thing that I just said, but connect to some element of it. Do you remember any of the examples that they gave? Um, but like the broad categories, remember the categories? I'm trying to think of, I don't have it in front of me at the moment. I think one of them was like analogy, right? So there's analogy, like this thing is similar to this thing connected with the gospel. Um, and I'm trying to remember if it was analogy or one of the other things, but basically the idea that you had, do you remember, Cal? Oh, okay. Um, basically the idea that the thing that we're looking at in the Old Testament connects with, anticipates, looks forward to something in the New Testament, corresponds to might be a good word. So, for example, in Genesis, what's one of the themes, and maybe Ben or Bobby or Robert, you guys can remember, um, what are some of the things that come up in the book of Genesis that would remind us that we need the gospel when we come to the Old Testament? What do we keep seeing people do? Ben? Okay, good. Disobeying God, right? 
And so if we're disobeying God, we need something done about that, right? And so then that would connect to the Gospel in the New Testament. Um, are there any, I think another of the categories had to do with promises. Are there any promises in Genesis that connect to the Gospel? What else? There's some later in the book, too. Okay? You, guys, in, you all the families of the earth, will be blessed in you and in your family and your descendants. Um, we haven't gotten to it yet, but some of the specific things, like Jacob's prophecy about Judah in, I think, chapter 48 is very specific about um, the coming of the Messiah. So... There's all of these connection points, even in what we've been looking at in the book of Genesis. Not, like you said, in every chapter, but even in the chapters where there's not a specific prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus or something like that, there are uh, points of correspondence that connect with the people at that time and also anticipate the coming of Christ. Um, for example, when <coughs> Jacob is... Um, when Jacob is tempted to be dissatisfied with God's plan for his life with regard to who he marries or with regard to the amount of livestock that he has or all of those sorts of things, what in, for example, Christ's life do we see a parallel or a correspondence or, or a connection point? Was Jesus ever tempted? Yeah. So there is potentially a connection point between Matthew 4 and the experiences of Jacob. Um, that being said, and I think this is one of the things that I remember us discussing in one of the sessions, there may be a number of connection points, but usually there's a better connection point than some of the other ones. So whereas Jacob was tempted to whatever, and Jesus was tempted, and there kind of is a loose connection between those things, there may be a closer or a better connection that we can look for. And so the reason that I bring that up is when he says the preaching of the gospel, he's coming from a context, it's actually a quote that's not on the page there, but we'll get to the page in just a second. He, it's coming from a context of not just, here's the things you need to believe in order to be saved. It's a context of how does the Old Testament anticipate and point to Jesus. And while... I'm not sure that I'm in the exact same spot as some of the people would be with regard to how they see Jesus in some of the texts of the Old Testament. I do think that there is often a um, there has been a tendency among certain segments in theology just to basically say the prophecies, the big ones like Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, that's the main things that point to Jesus, even though there's a bunch of other things that do too. So, okay. Anyways, um, I just wanted to kind of bring that up as a background before we get into the chapter. So, he says, the, the other thing that I was going to bring up comes in with this idea of the first quote. Preaching is the half hour each week when the assembly of the redeemed closes her collective mouth, opens her ears and heart, and hears the uninterrupted voice of her husband through his appointed mouthpiece, fallible through, though the messenger be. 
And before we get to the next question that I've written on the page there, is it true that we are only listening in the context of preaching? What are your thoughts on that? Like to expand on that? Well, in the context of preaching in the church service, are we only are we only listening or is there any element of us responding to God in connection with that? Okay. Um Yeah. So, along the lines, right. So, and and I think that that is where I would have a just a small bit of tension with what he said. There, um, and I forget the the background of the author, but in some churches it tends to be very much like everyone is silent in the context of the sermon, and that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, as long as the response is a heartfelt thing that is not done to draw attention to oneself, like you said, there's nothing wrong with saying amen or responding verbally, or at the very least, we ought to be responding in our hearts. His main point, I think, is when someone is leading us in singing, everyone is participating in singing. When someone is leading us in prayer, Usually we're being led in prayer, but theoretically we're all praying together. But when someone is preaching, we're not necessarily all preaching together. We're, res we're responding. If, our, if we're responding to something, it's we're responding to something that someone else is doing. Um, I think that's the main point that he's, he's getting at there. So along those lines, the question that you have there under the first quote, which is more profitable, dialogue, monologue, or both? Okay. When is each helpful, acceptable, useful? So, let's say in the context of the church services, should should it only be me talking to you guys from God's Word? Should there be any back and forth between us? What percentage do you feel like is a good one? Because I think this ties into, I think we've generally said, we feel like what we've been doing on Sunday nights is helpful and good. So the tendency potentially might be, if it's good and helpful on Sunday night, let's do it on Sunday morning too. Um, let's do it on Wednesday night. Let's do it in Sunday school. And... I'm not saying that would necessarily be untrue. I just want us to think through why or why not. Yes.
Okay. Efficiency is certainly one thing. What else? Yes. Okay. Good. What else? Would, would, we, would we generally agree that what we've been doing on Sunday nights is helpful? Why is it helpful? Okay. Which causes us to think about it more. And what else? Okay. 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 Okay, good. And what's true about application that you guys can do that I can't necessarily do? I can try, but I can't necessarily do. Right. I mean, I, I ought to think through what the application would be of the text, but... I can't possibly apply it to every person in every individual situation in the course of the sermon um, to the degree that if we're having a discussion and, the, and talking through it further and we're sitting there thinking about it and we're like, oh, here's what I need to do with this. Um, and some of that can be verbal, like we can talk about it out loud, and some of that might just be something that we think about internally and we're like, yeah, this is what I need to do. So... There is a, a value for both. He says in the next quote, we prize conversations, we adore dialogue, and dialogue is essential in disciple-making. The Great Commission goes forward through great conversations. I think he has a point there because sometimes when we come to the point of initial conversion, we felt like, maybe not we personally, Christians in, have sometimes felt like my job is to give a monologue. Do you agree? They say yes. All right, let's pray. At least at some points in the church's history, that's kind of been the approach. What are some potential pitfalls of that approach? If I say a bunch of things and I say, do you agree? Why might you say yes for reasons other than you actually believe it? Yeah, I don't... And particularly depending on your culture... You might not want to offend the person or be rude to them, so you might say, okay. Or you want them to leave, so you say, okay. What's the difference if I'm having a conversation with that person? What do their responses to what I'm saying about the gospel help me to see? Yeah, do they really get it? Do they understand it? Do they believe it? And so then I'm not pushing someone into a false profession of faith and leading to false assurance. And so... Yeah, I think definitely in the overall context of disciple-making, it's important to have conversations. He says, when we put ourselves under the preaching of God's Word, it's one of the precious few moments in life when we close our mouths and resist the temptation to respond right away, focus our energy and attention to hearing with faith. Our, the culture that we are a part of with regard to, for example, online interaction does not help us to do this well. Someone makes a comment, ah, oh, that person's wrong. And we're ready to, we got a response ready. Kelly's laughing because 
I've told her about some of those conversations that I've had with people, and I try not to do them with regard to anything, but particularly spiritual things, just because that's not really an effective venue for, you know, generally don't change people's minds through winning arguments on, online, so. Also, too, when somebody first starts coming to church, either as a kid, not saved, or get saved, and they start coming later as an adult, there are so many aspects that are not And I think we can do some of that in connection with the church services, but that's where I think part, a big part of the task of discipleship is not necessarily just what we're doing in the services, but theoretically what we're doing with one another outside of the church services as well. Um, anyways, going back to the, the other thing I was saying too, like when we are sort of primed and ready to have an immediate response to everything that we hear, Having not an opportunity to do that right away forces us to have an internal conversation theoretically with God about it and, and, and think about, okay, is this what this text is saying? If this is what this text is saying, here's what I need to do. So it, it pushes us to think and to ponder and hopefully to reflect on things in a way that if we have a chance to immediately respond, we may not be forced to do that in quite the same way. He says next, what we need is not some boost from a trusted fellow to help us get over the wall, but the rescue of the Savior for the utterly helpless. This is why when God's own Son took human flesh and blood and dwelt among us, fully one of us, he came preaching. The greatness of God and the gravity of our sin come together to give preaching its essential place. Endless dialogue without a pause for preaching betrays both the direness of our situation and the depth of God's mercy. And so Jesus was sent not only to die as the remedy, but also to preach, Luke 4.43. Jesus himself is the person the scriptures most often refer to as preaching, and he sent out his disciples to preach. Jesus was the consummate preacher, but after his ascension, the preaching doesn't disappear. It is something that I think that we tend not to think about with regard to the ministry of Christ from the perspective that we think about, okay, he did miracles, we think about that he taught, but we don't necessarily think about that he preached because we tend to think preaching is in the context of the church. The church wasn't around when Jesus came, and so we tend not to think about. But So let me ask you this. What's the difference between teaching and preaching? And what did Jesus' teaching look like? Did he ever say things that would convict people of sin? <laughs> yeah. So I think a lot of what Jesus said that we have classed as teaching, possibly due to the influence of people 
who have seen him merely as a teacher, we ought to step back a moment and say, Jesus was actually preaching, calling for a response of the people of his day and for us as well. And so for me, there's things I should learn from that for all of us that should perhaps affect our perspective on what Jesus' ministry looked like. He says then, the best of preaching serves the worshiper in the joy of self-forgetfulness and preacher forgetfulness. Preaching that goes on and on about the preacher himself, or is always angling at how the hearer should apply this or that to daily life, does so at the expense of tapping into the very power of preaching, namely a preoccupation with Jesus. True Christian preaching swallows up the listener again and again, not with self or the speaker, but with Jesus and his manifold perfections. Um, there's a book by a fellow named Dave Helm that Bob and I have read, and um, it has a lot. It has a very good point. And what they uh, what they do is they draw sort of a diagram, and I'm going to try to reproduce it, and I may mess it up, and then we can we can fix it. But So what sometimes happens is we go from the text to now. That's the error that he's talking about with regard to the idea of trying to immediately make application and only to make application. Um, and the danger of that is if we haven't understood what it actually meant for the people that it was addressed to in the first place, we're not going to probably apply it correctly to ourselves. Um, and. So one, one side of it would be the idea of misapplying it. And then another one would be the idea of some kind of agenda. If I feel like I want people to come to uh, a particular event, and I'm bothered that people aren't coming to that event, and I see this text as a potential springboard to guilting people into coming to a particular event, then I'm misusing the text for my own agenda. And so when it becomes about the preacher and what he wants, either making himself feel good or accomplishing some goal that he wants, or it becomes about the people in front of me instead of starting with what the text is actually saying and then going to it, and that's part of why it's important for us to say, all right, what did the text mean to them then? I'm going to talk about this more in the morning service, but when we look, for example, at the passage that we're going to look at this morning, there are things about the passage that I think do not necessarily make sense unless we take the Pentateuch as a whole unit. And what I mean by that is, when the children of Israel received those books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they were receiving them, presumably before Moses' death and after the Exodus, and so they're reading it in light of the fact that they have experienced all of these particular things and they have received the law and all of that sort of thing. And so there's just some things, which we'll get more to, into in the morning service, about the text, that if they just come up on their own, they seem very abrupt. But if you take them as the perspective of someone who has written them at the point at which he wrote them to the people who are at the point at which they're hearing it, the whole context, I think, makes a lot more sense. That being said, we need to understand what it meant to the people at that particular time, which could be understanding better what particular time we're talking about.
because if Genesis was written to an audience after the Israelites have been carried off to captivity, the tone and the emphasis potentially might have been different than it was. But Genesis, having been written to people who are about to enter into the Promised Land and the rest of the books of the Pentateuch, has the particular emphasis and things that are highlighted preparing them to go into the Promised Land. So that's just something to think about with regard to that. So there's context from the perspective of the original events. There's context from the perspective of the um, original audience. And there's context from the perspective of, we might, well, maybe not context, but then there's the idea of us today. So you have the original audience looking back at this in light of some passage of scripture. I probably should draw a scroll, but I don't know how to draw a scroll. So. Um, and then there's us looking back at the original events. But sometimes we want to leapfrog this and just talk about the original events. Yes. Such as? Okay. Right. Um, and I think the parallel with that would be the parallel like with some of the Psalms. And we've had this conversation. Some of the Psalms, we're not entirely sure of the historical setting of them. We can, I think, understand the truths that they're saying about God regardless of the historical setting, but if we know the historical setting and ignore it, we're more likely to misuse the text. Yeah. Sure. So in the example that I was talking about just now, I would say like Genesis 1, God makes the world. Happens way back here. The people who are hearing the book of the Pentateuch are Israelites after the Exodus. And I'm not saying that it necessarily dramatically changes the meaning of the text. It helps us to understand why one thing was emphasized and not another, I guess is the bottom line of, of what, like, like, why does the author take this thing, Genesis 1, and apply it to this audience in this way? That helps us to then understand how we ought to apply it to ourselves today in, in a better and a clearer sense, I think is the point that I'm trying to get at. Um, it doesn't mean that Moses reinterpreted the events of the creation of the world and made them something that they were not. But there are certain things that were emphasized, just like when we come to the Gospels. Different Gospels have different audiences, and so they highlight different things that are true about Jesus. Together, they give us a composite picture of the entirety of who Jesus is that does not contradict what the other ones are saying, but because of their specific audience, they have particular emphases. Yes?
Yeah, and I think the place where it helps the most is when we then apply it to ourselves. Um, and again, we talked, I think, last, last week about the difference between knowing stuff and responding appropriately to it. And so if, we're, if we just know stuff, here's the Bible story, great. But if we understand how it was applied to the people originally, and then that helps us to understand how it should be applied to us. Then we go from this to the gospel, which again is not this verse says Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. There, I mean, there's one verse that says that, right? A couple of verses that say that if you take the New Testament fulfillment of it. Not every verse says one specific fact about Jesus and his coming, but there are connection points between what was being said to the audience of that time and things that are true of Jesus and the gospel and so forth. And then that then leads us to today, which um, helps us to avoid the danger, both as listeners or as preachers, of making the application every week the same. Because it would be tempting and easier to look at Genesis and say, the application is, people keep messing up, we need Jesus, so believe in Jesus. But that would be, I think, a, a lazy and an insufficient way of looking at the book because there's specific things being said in different chapters. And I'm not saying that the way that I've preached different chunks of the book is the only way to do it. If I was going to redo it, there's sections of it I would probably group together slightly differently. But within those sections that we've gone through, there's a specific point being made that contributes to the overall idea. Yes? I'm trying to think about this, because I've heard a lot of different people say, uh, you know, you're talking <coughs> about Spurgeon and saying, you know, I agree with this method, and I think David how many reasons said this, uh, I agree with this method to try to connect the gospel to every time we preach, but I don't always agree with yeah. So, picturing this in my mind, if if the gospel is the main road, yeah, and then every passage of scripture is a side road that eventually connects to that main road, you might find one road, and I might find another. They both get to the gospel. So I, I think in that respect, we can always find a connection to the gospel no matter where we're at, but we might not always agree as to the right road. Yeah, uh, and my only response to that would be that there is one meaning of the text. So if there's a strong disagreement on what the text means, one or both of us is probably wrong. But with regard to when we get to the application part of it, yeah, I mean, and that's where I think when we talked about on Sunday nights, there are different perspectives on. Um, Evan, do you mind having a look out the door? Somebody just pulled up. They might need a hand in. Thank you. Um, there are different perspectives on how. Um, lost my train of thought. On Sunday nights, you might apply it to a particular situation because that's the situation that you're going through, and I might apply it to a particular situation because that's the situation that I'm going through. But the way that we're applying the text is different than the core meaning of the text and different from the general application that would be true of all of us. That, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. So moving on for sake of time. Um, 
What is a right balance between application and adoration of Jesus? I'm going to let you ponder that one on your own because for sake of time. But basically, just real quick summary, we need application in the context of a sermon. If it is only application and fails to stir our hearts to reflect on God and His greatness and all of those sorts of things, then there's probably something lacking in it. He says next, Well, preaching has not technically been called an ordinance or a sacrament. Its power is sacramental. It is a God-appointed means of communicating His grace to the church through the channel of our faith, with the chief benefit being an encounter with Jesus Himself. I want to talk more about that next week because it ties in with, we're going to talk about baptism, we're going to talk about the Lord's table, whether they are sacraments, ordinances, merely symbols, or actually accomplishing something. We'll talk more about that next week because I want to think about it a little bit more and I think we should all think about it a little bit more. Moving to the next part, the great goal of preaching is knowing and enjoying Jesus. The greatest incentive for attentive listening as we gather for corporate worship and sit under the preaching of God's Word is that we may know Him. Here we taste eternal life for 30 minutes a week in the highest aim of Christian preaching that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. This is a critical point because far too often it's easy for preachers and for listeners alike to approach the Sunday morning sermon as... Here is information that I will receive, rather than here is an encounter with the God whom I know and ought to love. And that's something that, that, that really needs to sink in. How does preaching then give grace? He has five answers. First of all, to forget ourselves. It is a glorious thing for our souls to be freed from our regular preoccupation with self as we're captivated by Christ. That phrase, regular preoccupation with self, I think sums up very well our daily experience. We're mostly thinking about ourselves, and to be, paught, to be brought to a spot where we have to think about Christ is a very good thing for us. Secondly, to fill our faith. Obviously, this is the starting point. If faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, then um, we are renewed and strengthened in our faith as we encounter God and His Word, and there's more examples of that in other passages. To grow in grace. And he would make the argument that it is essential that preaching be preoccupied with Jesus because if we are preoccupied with ourselves or if we forget the value of encountering God himself for sanctification, we will treat sanctification largely as a ritual that we are accomplishing on our own just by checking off the right boxes doing the right things, you know, that kind of thing, rather than seeing the essential aspect that we need God's power in order for us to be sanctified. Fourthly, in order to be equipped, we're going to talk about our church commitments uh, this evening, and specifically with regard to that, Ephesians 4 says that God gave pastors, among other um, uh, servants of the church, in order to equip the church. And so that is another important reminder because it's not primarily or exclusively my job to say, here's ministry and I'm going to do the ministry and you guys watch. It's an essential part of what I'm supposed to be doing to get you guys ready to do ministry. Practically, because there's only so many things one person can do, and more importantly, because God said, this is what's supposed to happen. The, the, the preacher is equipping the church 
to then go out and do ministry as the church going out from the gathering. And then fifthly, to encounter Jesus. And I think this one kind of ties in with one and three particularly. What if you came to worship next time, not looking merely to hear some preacher, but to encounter Jesus? If I do my job well, that's what should happen. And if you do your job well, which is listening to what the text is saying, that ought to happen. And so there's many different directions we could go from this, but I think one of the important ones is just to bring it to the idea that the sermon is not primarily to communicate information, although a good sermon will do that. The sermon is primarily to say, here's what God has said, and here's what it has to do with you, and here's what it has to do with you because here's what God has accomplished in and through Christ, and it continues to accomplish in your life. And so that is where the sermon ought to involve, unlike necessarily a Sunday school lesson, I mean, we're just having like a basic level discussion, information kind of thing. And there may be moments of conviction where we're like, oh, I should have thought about that in the context of Sunday school. But the sermon is, and if you're looking at the person behind you, it probably means you need it. But, no. but in the context of the sermon, maybe both, but um, in the context of the sermon, we ought to have the entirety of our being involved. Our minds, we're thinking about it. Our desires and emotions, we're stirred by it. And our will, we purpose to do things in light of it. And that's, I think, the difference between a good sermon and merely just a talk or a lecture or something like that. Yes? I think this is a great example. I mean, how many people understand that this is how we should read, this is how we should study, this is how we should Right. And that's where some of this stuff is directed at people who are preaching. A lot of it's directed toward people who are preaching or teaching God's Word. But there are a ton of applications of these ideas, even to just how we read Scripture for ourselves. And hopefully, I can model this for you on Sunday mornings because I've spent a great deal of time with a particular text. But it's not something that we say... That, that it's not like something that only I can do. It's something that all of us can do. Uh, so, anyway, so a lot of, I think, helpful points from this passage about preaching. Pick up on a few more of them next week, but we'll pause for today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. I didn't really have time to go into all of these other aspects of things, but there's, there's a push in our day to almost eliminate preaching in the context of the church service because we feel like people can't handle it or we've misunderstood the purpose of it, or we just don't want to do it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see the value of preaching in the context of what it helps us to connect with you better, the 
changes that it produces in our lives and the um, stirring of our souls so that we are motivated for and equipped for ministry. And so we just pray that you would bless the service to follow. And we pray that those that we've invited to church might be able to come and pray for um, other relationships, that you'll continue to work in those as we, as we reach out to people, but even more importantly, that we will be prepared in the service to go back out to those people during this week. In Christ's name, amen.